Hi, my name is Rich Brodsky. I'm a pediatric emergency physician and a parent. I know that going to the emergency room with your child can be a scary and confusing experience. I've been there on both sides. That's why I wanted to bring Pep Talk to you. Pediatric Emergencies for Parents, a podcast where I talk with experts about problems that bring you to the emergency department with your child. The goal is to make parents and others who take care of kids more informed. And we're doing it one pep talk at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pep Talk. Today's talk is going to focus on a subject that is very common, but prompts a lot of questions, febrile seizures. Febrile seizures are the most common neurologic disorder of infants and young children. They occur in approximately 2 to 5% of children under the age of 5 and are one of the things many parents worry about the most when their child has a high fever. Today, I am joined by Dr. Neil Miele from the Pediatric Emergency Department and Dr. Genevieve Gabriel, who is a pediatric neurologist. Before we get started with that conversation, let me once again say that Pep Talk is an informational podcast. Every patient and every situation is unique. The information on the show is not intended to be direct medical advice. If you have any questions about your child or their health, please contact your doctor or seek appropriate medical attention. Hello, and welcome to Pep Talk, Pediatric Emergencies for Parents. This has to be one of the most scary things for parents that come through the emergency department. Normally, the average child is at home having a fever, febrile illness, something that we previously talked about on another episode. When suddenly they stop responding, the eyes may roll back, and they have a seizure. This is, of course, terrifying to any parent, but they come to the emergency department and we take care of them there. And the question is, what do we want to know about this problem and this process? Today with me, I have Dr. Neil Miele from Pediatric Emergency Medicine. Dr. Miele, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Hi, all. I'm Neil Miele. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and have been practicing in a pediatric emergency department for 34 years. Currently, I work at the Bristol-Myers Squibb Children's Hospital Pediatric Emergency Department. Thank you so much for being here. And now I also have with me Dr. Genevieve Gabriel from Pediatric Neurology. Dr. Gabriel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. I'm Genevieve Gabriel. I'm a pediatric neurologist and epileptologist. I'm assistant professor at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and I currently practice at the Bristol Myers Squibb Children's Hospital at Rutgers RWJ in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Thank you for being here as well. I really appreciate it. Dr. Miele, first thing is that a patient's going to arrive in the emergency department after having a febrile seizure. On average, what do those patients look like when they come to the ED? Depending on how quickly the, the patient arrives here, most febrile seizures last five minutes or less. Very often, by the time they reach us, the patient will be sleepy. We call it a post-ictal period. It's just our medical term for 
a post-seizure period. Typically, having the seizure is very exhausting for the patient, so they will usually be very sleepy for up to an hour. I say to parents that they almost look drunk afterwards for up to an hour, and that's not anything to worry about. It's just the body's way or the brain's way to recuperate. That's an interesting question, Dr. Gabriel. What is happening in our brains when we have these febrile seizures? So I guess one backtrack, seizures in general, what's happening to the brain during that time, there's a hypersynchrony of electrical activity, whether something had provoked it or it's a spontaneous event. The hypersynchrony that Dr. Gabriel is talking about means that groups of brain cells called neurons become excited and all fire at the same time. I like to think of neurons as runners in a relay race, passing an electrical message, or baton for the analogy, from one runner to the next. However, when hypersynchrony occurs, it's like a single runner passing lots of batons to all of its teammates at once. Then, each of those teammates pass the electrical baton to another huge numbers of runners all at once. These coordinated pulses continue to activate more and more cells, and the action is so powerful that the normal mechanisms the brain uses to control the electrical signals or shut them down just isn't strong enough. Because of that hypersynchrony of electrical activity, it results in a clinical phenomenon, whether it's shaking of all over the body or shaking of just one part of the body, all sorts of different clinical phenomenon. And then after the seizure, when that hyper-excitability and uh, hypersynchrony of electrical activity is over, now we're going to have slow brain waves. And that's where we're seeing this post-ictal period where the patient is sleepy. You can think of it as the brain is resetting itself during this time. So with all of that electrical activity that occurs, it seems like a storm, and then it has to recover. There's a quiet after the storm, and that's why we get that period. Yes. And Dr. Mille, there are different types of febrile seizures. We usually label them as simple and complex. Can you tell me what a simple febrile seizure is and what that means? Sure. So some people will also use the terminology of typical versus atypical febrile seizure. Simple means the same thing as typical. And even though we say typical, the atypical or complex febrile seizures can happen up to 20% of the time. But to get back to what is a simple febrile seizure, febrile seizures, although they are scary, they are fairly common. And depending on whose books you read, anywhere between half a percent and 2% of all patients uh, of all children will have at least one during their lifetime. Typically, they affect younger children. And there are some criteria that make this a simple febrile seizure. First one is between six months and six years of age. That doesn't mean they don't happen outside of that age group, but typically uh, as you get older, your brain matures and becomes less likely for this to happen. Second criteria is that it tends to affect the whole body. Seizures are caused by abnormal electrical activity. And when you have a febrile seizure, the whole brain is affected by this abnormal electrical activity, so you will have generalized convulsions, meaning your arms may be shaking, your eyes will be rolling back, your legs will be shaking. So uh, the scary type of seizures, these are terrifying, even though we call them the simple ones. These are the terrifying looking Yes, seizures. yes. And, and the old terminology, which we don't really use anymore, is a grand mal seizure, meaning grand mal meaning large sickness. The other criteria for simple febrile seizures 
are only one episode in a 24-hour period. And lastly, the duration is that it is less than 10 minutes in length. Yeah. And as Dr. Gabriel said, no focality. Uh, again, that it's a generalized seizure that's affecting the whole the whole body. Was it 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I thought? The technical criteria is 15 minutes. Okay. However, in practical terms, to me, anything longer than five minutes is a prolonged seizure. Really? That's just in practical terms. For In practical terms, meaning if somebody's been seizing five minutes, mm-hmm. you're not going to say, I'm not going to do anything. It's only oh, five well, minutes. Yes. That's a very common thing that we do in the emergency department. We're like, okay, we're not going to sit and watch this kid seize for another 10 minutes. We'll give medication, even though we know it will likely resolve. So by the time they've received multiple medications, okay, it had stopped. But if we hadn't intervened, how long would it have lasted? I pay extra attention to them because if we needed to give so much medications to stop it, then it tells you, okay, this maybe would not have stopped on its own Mm. within a short time frame. Given that criteria of having a fever or having a fever directly afterwards, having the seizure last between 5 and 15 minutes, depending upon your clinical criteria, having all four arms and legs shaking in what Dr. Mealy described as general convulsions or grand mal seizure, and having a lack of focality, which means that they're not moving to one side or they're not looking to one side, everything is equal on both sides. Uh, This creates a simple febrile seizure for us. And what does that mean as far as what you look at, Dr. Gabriel, about a family or a patient that has a simple febrile seizure? What's that prognosis? What does that mean? Why do we have to differentiate between the two, I guess is what you're asking, between simple and complex febrile seizure? The reason why we have to differentiate between the two is that the simple febrile seizure patients, they are less likely to to develop unprovoked or recurrent spontaneous seizures later on in life. Epilepsy. Epilepsy. Whereas the ones with complex febrile seizures, they have a slightly higher risk than the ones that had simple febrile seizures to develop this epilepsy later on in life. It's not 100%, okay? It's not if you had complex febrile seizure, 100% of the time you will develop epilepsy. It's not like that. But we pay extra attention to those that presented with complex febrile seizure, especially if they have other risk factors along with it, we pay closer attention to them. Like what other kinds of risk factors? So such as if they had baseline developmental delay or if they have family history of epilepsy. And in addition to it being a complex febrile seizure. If you had all three, then that's the one that has the highest risk of developing epilepsy later on. As Dr. Mille said, we usually say that children who get simple febrile seizures grow out of it, usually around six years of age, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. But why? Why do these children get these seizures in the first place? And why do they grow out of it? What is going on in the brain? Why do they get it in the first place? There is a genetic predisposition to this. If you ask these families, sometimes they'll tell you that, yeah, the dad had it, the mom had it, they had febrile seizures when they were babies, plus other family members, etc. So there is some genetic predisposition to it. What exactly triggers it or what exactly happens? How come not everybody gets it, right? It's because of that genetic predisposition. But what is the process behind it? We don't exactly know, but there's some papers saying that when an infection happens, and depending on the kind of infection, 
you get these inflammatory chemicals. Inflammatory chemicals get produced in the body in reaction to the infection. And the first part that happens is that it causes the what we call the blood-brain barrier, which is supposed to block some of these chemicals from crossing into the brain. The blood-brain barrier can be a difficult concept to visualize. Basically, not every single molecule that is in our blood is good for our brain. There are some things that need to be kept out. On the other hand, there are lots of things that need to get in, like nutrients, electrolytes, sugar, and hormones. The blood-brain barrier is the term we give to the very complicated system that separates the blood from the brain. Think of a large volleyball net. If a circulating substance in the blood is the right size or the right shape, you'll go right through. But if you're too big or are shaped awkwardly, you will bounce off and continue on your way through the blood. The theory that the inflammatory chemicals that Dr. Gabriel is referring to normally stay out of the brain. But with the right genetic profile and the right infection, more of these substances pass through than the brain is used to seeing. It makes that barrier leaky. And so some of these are able to cross over. And then when they are able to cross over, what can happen is that the same or other inflammatory chemicals can cause an imbalance in the, in the brain chemicals that are supposed to inhibit things and are supposed to excite the electrical activity. There's supposed to be a very nice balance between those two. And so you don't have seizures. When you have an imbalance in that, then that can arise in the seizures and that imbalance can be caused by these uh, inflammatory chemicals that are able to pass through. Mm. As to why it is outgrown, oh, that's great I don't too. think we exactly know the answer to that. It's the same, same sort of principle with other childhood epilepsies that are able to be outgrown, right? How come they are such? that they're able to be outgrown. We don't know the exact answer to that, I don't think. Yeah. Still one of the great mysteries of medicine yes. at this point. It's a, it's, the brain is very complex, especially developing brain is very complex. A lot of those processes we, we don't exactly know yet. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mille, in the emergency department, how long does the post state normally last before you get worried? It typically will last up to about an hour or so. If we don't see a child waking up after that, we start thinking about other causes of, uh, of what may be going on. The postictal period can last longer than an hour on occasion without it necessarily signifying any, any major problem. You have a patient that has come to you with a febrile seizure. They have their postictal state. They're in your emergency department. What do you do for them as far as testing goes? Obviously, we're doing something to manage the fever first, whether that's giving Tylenol or, or acetaminophen or ibuprofen. We can say Tylenol and Motrin. Too. Okay, Tylenol or Motrin or Advil. So doing something for the fever. And then really our assessment is based on whatever we would normally do to assess the fever. If we hear something in the lungs, we may be doing x-rays. Uh, but for the seizure itself, we or for the febrile seizure itself, we are not typically doing any blood work. There are many studies showing that blood work is typically going to be normal for these, for these episodes. Our testing is really based on what's causing the fever and is there an underlying illness causing the fever. So as we once discussed in one of our fever episodes, maybe check a urine for some of these kids that are at risk for having urinary tract infections. 
possibly an ear infection, looking in the ears for anything, but there are no specific tests that you'll do for the seizure itself. Uh, that's correct. Why don't we perform brain scans on all of these patients that have febrile seizures, whether they be complex or simple? Or would you do it if you had a complex febrile seizure? We didn't really talk too much yet about complex febrile seizures. No, we and, didn't. And Why don't we start there then? Let's talk about complex febrile seizures. Tell me, if you have someone who doesn't have a simple febrile seizure and has a complex febrile seizure, how would your treatment change? So in a complex uh, febrile seizure, or as I said before, a typical febrile seizure, these are episodes that don't meet those uh, traditional criteria. So these can be seizures that last longer than 15 minutes. They uh, are occurring outside of that age range of six months to six years. They're having a second or more episode of febrile seizure in a 24-hour period, or there's some abnormality or some focality to the seizure, meaning that, let's say, only one arm is shaking, but the rest of the body seems to be fine. When we see a complex febrile seizure, it makes us just look a little bit closer as what's going on with the patient. Again, very often, this is just a more prolonged episode with no other major problems. However, when we do see a febrile seizure in a, in a very small infant, we may think more about the possibility of infection in the brain. When we see a focality of the seizure, when, for instance, if we just see one arm is shaking, we have to at least think, why is only one part of the brain affected? And is that a reason to actually take a closer look at the brain? So two-part question. Would you scan the brain of someone who had a simple febrile seizure? And would you scan the brain of someone who has a complex febrile seizure? With the simple febrile seizure in general, we would not. Again, unless there was something that is disturbing that when the patient wakes up, there's some sort of neurologic finding. As the child wakes up, uh, seems to have some sort of finding on exam, we may need to consider some sort of imaging. In the complex febrile seizure, uh, it really depends Overall, what makes that a complex febrile seizure? In the patient that has a focality to the seizure, meaning that only one part of the body is shaking, we may lean toward imaging in those cases. Again, to uh, try to understand why is only one part of the brain having a seizure and not the rest of the brain. In the case of a prolonged seizure, we probably would not be doing any imaging. Uh, if a patient has a second episode in a 24-hour period, we would probably not be doing any imaging for just that reason. One of the other things that uh, I wanted to bring up as well, when looking at complex versus simple febrile seizures, one of the criteria that I always look at is, are they awake during the seizure as well? Because if they are completely unconscious and unable to respond to you, that is more likely to be the generalized seizure that you're talking about that's simple. Whereas if they're able to be awake while there's uncontrollable seizure activity, that is generally the more complex. So strangely enough, the scarier looking seizure is the one that is more benign. That is correct. Could be. Could be. Could be. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Absolutely. <laughs> no, the reason I say that is because part of the criteria for being complex is the prolonged. They could come in and they're in status epilepticus, meaning... What does that mean? Meaning the seizure has been going on for a long time. Again, technical definition would be 30 minutes, but we don't sit there for 30 minutes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We try to intervene, do everything we can to stop this seizure that has been going on for a long time. You know, it, that's also scary, right? It, yes, yeah, yes, yes, it is. 
So when we need to intervene, Dr. Mille, someone is coming to the department and is still seizing. Let's say it's five minutes that they've been seizing and you're like, this could be a simple febrile seizure, but I need to intervene at this time to stop the seizure. What What do you do? Most commonly, we would try to get in, uh, intravenous access or IV access and give a medication through the IV. Most commonly, we'd give uh, lorazepam or known as Ativan through the IV. If there is not the capability of getting quick intravenous access, there are other ways to give this medication. It can be actually given uh, rectally, which works uh, pretty much just as fast mm. as if we give it IV. There are some people that have started doing an intranasal or squirting the medicine up the nose to stop the seizure with some success, which is a newer approach. The rectal and the nasal approaches are sometimes used by our ambulance squads because they just don't have the capability of getting quick intravenous access. We can give the dose as an intramuscular shot. takes a little bit longer to work. And to be honest, the rectal dose, if that's available, is, is probably quicker than giving it as an intramuscular shot. Dr. Gabriel, one of the biggest myths that surround febrile seizures in general is that if the family works hard enough and gives enough Tylenol and enough Motrin, they will prevent the seizure. What do you have to say about that? Okay, so on the one hand, we do have some studies saying that it is not effective for preventing another febrile seizure episode. Okay, mm -hmm. let's say a patient that has had one febrile seizure, okay, for their next febrile illness, we give them the an uh, anti-fever medicine, you don't give them the anti-fever medicine, their recurrence rate will be same. So okay. it does not necessarily prevent it. Oh, wait, we should give me the, the hold on one second. But hold on one second. <laughs> there is one design study out of Japan, okay, where they only looked at febrile seizure patients that got admitted to the hospital. Okay, mm. for whatever reason. And then they did 24-hour rectal acetaminophen around the clock for mm -hmm. the first 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Two groups, one had it, one did not have it. And they were able to show in that paper that the ones that did receive the round-the-clock 24-hour rectal acetaminophen, their risk of recurrence of febrile seizure within the same febrile illness is lower. Because hmm. remember, some of them will have within the first 24 hours more than one episode, right? Two or three episodes within their first 24 hours. That's partly what makes it complex, right? As we discussed earlier. What this study is telling us that, okay, within the same fair bill in us, doing your diparetics, quote unquote, aggressively, may be able to reduce the recurrence risk for that within that same febrile illness. Hmm. But moving forward in the future, their recurrence risk of having another febrile seizure for their subsequent febrile illnesses. Mm -hmm. That's what do we do with that, right? Because the fever's unpredictable sometimes, right. right? Sometimes that's the first sign of an infection is that, boom, they get the fever plus the seizure at the time. They were fine. 10 minutes ago. They were totally fine. Yeah. You know, playing everything and then that's the first sign that they're brewing an infection. So really, in terms of preventing it in terms of, oh, I'm just going to give them anti-fever medicine every day of their life. No. <laughs> yeah, that's not 
That's a um, little, that's probably not healthy for your liver either. Yes. But having said that, there may be a role within that same febrile illness. If we were, were looking to prevent recurrence, then there may be a role for that. Hmm. Let's take a quick break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more about febrile seizures with Dr. Neil Miele and Dr. Genevieve Gabriel. Now, you mentioned something that I often talk to families about as well, which is the next febrile seizure. Now, in some kids, they get one their whole life. Some kids, they have a couple. And some kids, they get it with every single febrile episode that they get. They're very susceptible to it. How often, how is that split? How many children in general have one or two and how many get a lot of febrile seizures? Yes, about 30% of the time, the febrile seizure can recur, meaning the next febrile illness, they'll have another febrile seizure. Not necessarily every single febrile illness. Okay. And there are certain risk factors that if they are present, they may make it more likely that those will be the patients to have the recurrence. And those are if they were younger at the age of the onset, if their max temperature triggering the seizure was lower, Mm. and if they have a a first-degree relative with a history of febrile seizures and a shorter duration of the fever before the seizure happened. And if their prior febrile seizure was complex in the way that it recurred within the first 24 hours. So a younger child who didn't even know they were going to get their seizure until five minutes after they had a fever, who also had a family member, they're more likely to recur. Yes. The younger age, it just it's because they have more time that they're susceptible. Now, the patients that have them frequently, like every single febrile illness results in a seizure. We may pay attention to those more. Now, Mm. there's no exact number like, okay, if you've had five, if you've had seven, Mm -hmm. what's the exact number? There's no exact number. As neurologists, we pay attention to those more because in rare cases, That's actually the first presentation of their epilepsy. Mm, That brings up an interesting question. If you get simple febrile seizures, on average, do you have an increased risk of epilepsy as compared to everybody else in the population? Only slightly. So we're talking simple febrile seizures, Simple febrile seizures. It's only slightly increased. So only slightly meaning if the general population has a risk of epilepsy of 0.5%, then a child that had simple febrile seizure maybe goes to 1%. So double the risk, but still one in 200 or one in 100 extra would get epilepsy. Yes. Because they had a warning sign of a simple febrile seizure. When a patient has true epilepsy, a fever is going to make them more likely to have a seizure. So because of that, it is always possible that anybody who presents with what looks like a simple febrile seizure there is a small risk that this was actually an epilepsy episode brought on by that fever. Yes, I always tell the parents, anytime that there's a seizure without fever whatsoever, then they have to reach out to me right away. Mm. Not wait till the next appointment, which is months away. Just we need to know that right away. That's a great question as well. When does a patient with a simple febrile seizure need a neurologist? 
Okay. First of all, pediatric emergency medicine practitioners and pediatricians, both of these types of uh, specialists are able to do the initial evaluation of simple febrile seizure. And if they are comfortable in the diagnosis with the counseling and all the things that we advise the parents, and there's nothing atypical about it, then they may not need to see a neurologist from that point on. We do get some of those referrals still for a variation of reasons. And if they do end up seeing us, we're happy to see them and provide our own counseling and also make sure that, in fact, it was a simple febrile seizure and does not need additional evaluations. If there's anything atypical about it, for, for example, they've had too many recurrences, like I said earlier, but again, there's no exact number. Or the febrile seizures were complex in that they were prolonged or exquisitely focal, then those patients need additional evaluation by neurology, usually. I'm going to ask you both a question. It's the question that we get in the emergency department very frequently. Has this simple febrile seizure caused my child to have brain damage? Unless it's a very unusual circumstance, the answer is no. This simple febrile seizure should not cause any brain damage. Yes, I agree with that. In fact, if we take seizures in general, if they are short and self-limiting, those very short seizures, they really don't cause any lasting brain damage or, or so to speak. They, they really don't do that. So in and of itself, a febrile seizure, really the more pressing question in the emergency room setting, which was already alluded to earlier, is to find what's causing the fever. Mm. Dr. Gabriel, Let's say that Dr. Miele or myself admits a patient to the hospital because of a complex febrile seizure. Let's say there was, it, it looks complex. The patient had a prolonged post-ictal phase, or it was a, a very odd seizure. It recurred two or three times in the emergency department, which is unusual for simple febrile seizures. What happens to that patient once they are admitted to the hospital? What do we do in the hospital for them? As far as the fever workup goes, neurology, we take a step back on that end and we let the pediatrics team handle that part of the workup. From our standpoint in neurology, we may order some tests for these patients. The main thing is we're trying to find out what is their overall risk of recurrence. The complex febrile seizure patients, they have a slightly higher risk to develop epilepsy compared to the simple ones. So then within that group, we're trying to find out, okay, who are the ones who we have to pay attention because this is the one that may develop epilepsy later on. And now one of those tests I know is an EEG. Could you describe what that is? What, what happens when you get an EEG test? An EEG you can think of it as similar principle to an EKG or ECG, which I think is more familiar to parents. That's when they use wires and with a sticker, stick it on the chest to check the heart electrical activity. This time, the EEG checks for brain electrical activity. So we would use the wires, but instead of going on the chest, we would stick it on the patient's head using like a little paste. And there are several of them. There's way more wires than in an ECG. So we would attach that to the head and there's no needles involved in this test. And the patient just relaxes during the test. And we just want to record the brain waves while they're just relaxing there. We want to capture them sleeping also, usually during this test that yields us more data. 
And sometimes, depending on the kind of EEG we're doing, sometimes we do some maneuvers like I use a strobe light. We would put a strobe light in front of their face to see if there's any additional findings we find from that. Is that like when every video game I've ever played says, warning, these lights might cause seizure activity, or you're trying to stimulate that specific reflex? There are several things that we may uh, be able to stimulate using the, the strobe light. That's very rare, though, to, that the strobe light will cause an actual seizure. Oh, okay. Okay, so some of these changes are just seen on the EEG. Oh, it okay. just shows up in your brain. In the EEG, okay. yes. So we're looking for all sorts of these things that can be stimulated. If the child is old enough, we may ask them to hyperventilate or breathe in and out repeatedly for a few minutes. And then we're reviewing the brain waves. Okay, and now a, a common thought may arise that, okay, the seizure is over, right? Mm -hmm. What are we trying to achieve here? Mm -hmm. Are we putting the EEG on and we're trying to capture another seizure while the EEG is on? Mm -hmm. Most of the EEGs that we do, let's say the outpatient EEGs, right? They're short EEGs, 30 minutes to one hour, let's say. We're not doing it to capture another seizure, mm -hmm. right? We know that the seizure is over. It's unlikely going to happen at that time that we're doing this one hour EEG. But the reason we're doing it is because patients that have a tendency to get recurrent spontaneous seizures, even when they're not having the seizures, we often will find abnormal brain waves just randomly there. Okay. Not all the time there. It's like you scroll through a few pages. Oh, one. You scroll through another few pages. Oh, here's another one. And we're looking for those. That's what essentially the thing we're looking for in these patients. These are markers. These abnormal markers are what tells us that, hey, this may be a patient that may have a tendency to have these spontaneous seizures in the future. Even not as an inpatient, but as an outpatient, should every single patient that has a simple febrile seizure get an EEG? No. In seizures in general, if the seizure, there's a clear provoking factor that is no longer present now, then they don't need an EEG mm -hmm. because we know this is not epilepsy. We know there's this identifiable provoking factor in there. Okay. The ones that do not have an identifiable provoking factor, then most likely it was a spontaneous event. Those are the ones definitely we start off getting EEG for their initial workup. Now, in complex febrile seizures, that's another story, especially mm. the ones where it's prolonged or focal. Then we pay attention to them because, one, they're higher risk for epilepsy. And two, this may be the initial presentation of an epilepsy, right? And mm. so those are the more likely we will order an EEG for them. Dr. Mele, we've talked a little bit about recurrence. So when you send a patient home from the emergency department and families ask you, what do I do if this comes back? What, what do you generally tell parents and families? How, how should they behave? What should they do when a patient has a seizure if it recurs? Great question. So in general, seizures are scary looking to observe. In my career, in my life, I've had patients have seizures in a shopping mall on an airplane. Is there a doctor in the house? Is there and, anyone here? <laughs> correct. And to be honest, there's without having a, a medication available, there's not anything more that I'm able to do other than what any other parent or anyone can do. So first, always remember seizures in some patients can be a little bit violent in terms of the degree of the convulsion. 
So make sure the patient's somewhere where they won't get hurt. Don't leave them on the hardwood floor. Don't have them on a glass table. Try and get them on a bed or some somewhere soft. When I was a child, I was told, oh, that you can swallow your tongue during the seizure. Put a spoon in their mouth. No, absolutely not. Do not put anything in their mouth. You're not going to swallow your tongue during the seizure. However, what can happen is that you lose control of your tongue. And particularly if you're on your back, your tongue kind of falls to the back of the mouth and the patient can have a little bit of trouble breathing. If you think there's any trouble breathing at all, put the patient on their side or even potentially hold them upside down or face down, supporting their head so that the tongue falls out of the way to open up their airway. The real complications we see with seizures is sometimes you have an episode like this and the patient, sometimes they will throw up during a seizure. Now they have a mouthful of vomitus and the worry isn't the seizure, the worry is that the child can, can aspirate some of those contents. You shouldn't be putting anything in the mouth to clear out the mouth. If you try to do that, sometimes these seizures are violent. Either someone will get bitten or a tooth will break and now there will be blood in the mix, which uh, makes everything uh, look a whole lot worse. So the main thing is, again, support that support the head. If there's any concern of breathing or vomit in the mouth, hold the patient face down and allow them to clear out that mouth. At the same time, when this happens, feel free to have somebody call an ambulance to, to get some help and potential transfer to the hospital. I'm going to ask you both the same question here. Actually, it's a two-part question. I'm going to start with Dr. Gabriel, and then we'll go to Dr. Miele. What is the biggest myth that you know of regarding febrile seizures that people ask you about? And number two, if you had one thing that you would like to communicate to families regarding febrile seizures, what would that be? The biggest myth would have to be that something you mentioned earlier, Oh, did, is the seizure melting my child's brain or causing some damage, especially lasting damage? Um, we, we've said this repeatedly earlier, it does not. Seizures for that matter, whether it's febrile or not febrile, the short ones, they stop on their own. It really does not cause a lasting damage in that way. It is very scary to go through. I can't even begin to imagine what the parents are going through during this time. But once it's over, the seizure is over, it's calmed down. Yes, it may come back in terms of next febrile illness. So we have to do really the counseling for that. Okay, if it happens again, do they need to come to the emergency room every time? What do they need to do? Are there things that we can equip them with? And in terms of that, if the patient has, let's say, they have a tendency to have prolonged febrile seizures, then we can prescribe to them emergency medicine that they can use at home to give to the patient while they're waiting for help to come, to help the seizure stop earlier than it would have been if no medication was given. So these are as-needed emergency medicine that we may prescribe depending on the situation. Dr. Gabriel, when would you prescribe one of those home medications to give? I understand that as Dr. Mille had mentioned before, we can give some medication at home rectally. We can give it in the nose. Sometimes I understand it can go in the cheek. What type of patient would you prescribe that kind of uh, abortive medication, abortive as in aborting the seizure medication right. to? So the ones that they have a tendency to have them prolonged, okay? And again, the prolonged 
I don't mean technical prolonged 15 minutes. Anything of going more than five minutes is really, to think about it, it's prolonged. So we instruct the parents, okay, if it's been going and it's going beyond five minutes, give this medication. We give them education on how it's administered and how it's given at home. But they still may need evaluation, even though, let's say, they gave it, it worked, the seizure stopped. But then they still need the rest of the evaluation, right? Like, why did they have the fever in the first place, right? So even that, I still tell the parents, okay, there's another febrile seizure. It's short. You didn't need the medicine. The child was okay afterwards. Maybe you don't need to rush to the emergency room at that next time because we know the child has a tendency to have this. But the fever evaluation still needs to happen, right? Now, whether that's an outpatient setting the next day or something like that, uh, that's part of the counseling too. Parents will sometimes ask me personally, do I have to come back here every single time? And to that, I answer, technically, if you become experienced, this is not your first child with febrile seizures, or you've had two or three before this point, and you feel comfortable with what we do here, which is observing the postictal state and seeing them recover. If you're comfortable with that at home, then you could probably do that at home. But if at any point you feel that you want to be reevaluated or evaluated at all, do not hesitate. Do not let anyone tell you not to come to the emergency department. I usually say, even if you are the most experienced person with seizures, if you want to come to the ER to get evaluated, you come to the ER to get evaluated. Never question yourself for that. But if you are comfortable with that follow-up and you don't feel like you need to come to the emergency department, that's okay. Would you agree with that? Yes, exactly. So I tell them that one, if the seizure was long, you have to come. Mm -hmm. All right. Number two, if seizure's over, but they're not recovering in the way that you would expect them to, because this is not the first time, right? It's happened before. So you already know the pattern that, oh, they bounce back after X number of time and they were totally normal once they bounce back. But something is off with that after seizure phase or post-ictal phase, you should also come. And like you said earlier, anything that makes you uncomfortable with the way they're acting af afterwards in the seizure, don't hesitate to come. Dr. Mele, I'm going to go to you to our question from before. What is the biggest myth that you see in the emergency department regarding febrile seizures? And what is the one thing that you would want parents to know about febrile seizures? I think I, I mentioned before uh, that uh, during these episodes, you will not swallow your tongue. There is no reason to put anything in the mouth uh, to try and clear out the mouth. Um, however, uh, the main dangers of seizures are not the seizures themselves. It's things that happen along with the seizure, uh, particularly a vomiting episode or any sort of difficulty breathing. So. The uh, main uh, concern is to first make sure the patient is somewhat comfortable that they won't get hurt. And if there is any issues at all with breathing or vomiting, to either turn the child on their side or even uh, support their head and have them face down to try and clear out the mouth. For me personally, when I am in the emergency department, my biggest thing that I want to advise parents on is that this is not their fault. One of the most common things that parents will say to me is, what could I have done to prevent this? What could I have done to, to take care of this? What could I do? What could I have done? And the biggest thing is that, as you said, we have most of our studies, a large majority of our studies show 
that Tylenol and Motrin around the clock will not necessarily prevent a febrile seizure from happening. So I always want them to know that these things happen. It is a genetic predisposition. It, it occurs, but that this is not something that necessarily they were at fault for in the fact that they didn't stop it. And with that, I want to thank both of you for joining me. This has been an amazing talk. I appreciate you both being here and thank you for coming on this pep talk. Thank you. Thank you. This pretty much wraps up our talk on febrile seizures. We've learned a lot of great information today that febrile seizures are very common, although very scary to look at. These types of seizures do not cause brain damage, but we do need to make sure that the patient is safe during and after the seizure. Most young children who have a simple febrile seizure will not have another, but those that do will usually grow out of them by six years of age. However, a very small minority of these patients who have significant risk factors and don't have the usual type of febrile seizure may be actually showing the first signs of epilepsy. Although Dr. Gabriel mentioned that around-the-clock fever medicine can reduce the second episode of seizure in a febrile illness, it does not prevent a febrile seizure from happening in the first place. In fact, I think this was put best by one of my previous guests when they briefly mentioned febrile seizures on our fever talk. So my biggest thing that I like to counsel about, and this is more specific to, to febrile seizures, is that you missing a dose of Tylenol or Motrin or any antipyretic is not the reason that a child has had a febrile seizure, so it's not your fault. I think that's the biggest concern it, from a lot of the parents that I talk to is that they're worried that the fever being 104 means that their child's at a higher risk of having a febrile seizure or some sort of brain injury or damage. And that's not the case. And studies have shown us that it's not how high the fever is that causes febrile seizures. But once it's happened and a child has come to see me, I always want to reassure the family that it's not because you didn't give Tylenol that the child had a, a febrile seizure and it's, and it's not your fault. And that's one of those big things that I come to a lot and I think is really important to know. With that, I would like to thank Drs. Neil Miele and Genevieve Gabriel again for joining us. Did you like what you heard today? Have a question? Complaint? Suggestion for a future topic? Please email us at rich at peptalkpodcast.net. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps. We are currently on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Spotify. You can always find us at www.peptalkpodcast.net. Also, please tell a friend you think might enjoy our content. Next time, I'll be discussing asthma and asthma attacks with Dr. James Lucky and Dr. Maya Ramagopal. Until then, thank you for listening as we help people who care for children one pep talk at a time. <laughs>